Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Bearden Jarvis, and I know I say this, that I'm thrilled to be sitting down with my guests, but I am just bonkers to be sitting down with this guest that I have with me today, who I feel like I can call sort of like an old friend, but mostly what yeah. is that I've been stalking her for a long time, and she's <laughs> been kind and tolerating me, but this is the second time we've had a chance to talk. She interviewed me, and now I get to interview her. Julia Samuel, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm so thrilled. I feel like you are a friend more, Megan. And isn't it interesting how through these different channels, which get a lot of bad press, we actually do make wonderful connections as well. I feel the same way. I, I understand, particularly for teenagers, and I have one of them, that social media can be such a challenging, difficult thing. But in my own experience with grief and my professional experience with grief, we've created this community of people that I consider really dear to me, many of mm. whom I have not had a chance to meet in person before. Exactly. But, but the crossover of the work, which we're going to talk community about community is, is fantastic. It is. Yeah. It is. So I want to tell folks, if there's like one person listening who doesn't know who Julia Samuel is, I want to start and just give you um, a quick bio of her. And when I say a quick bio, I mean, we could spend the 45 minutes just talking about what she's already done in her 33 years in the field. She's a psychotherapist who specializes in grief. And she spent the last 33 years working with bereaved families and in the world of grief and loss. She's worked both in private practice and in the NHS and at St. Mary's Hospital Paddington, where she pioneered the role of maternity and pediatric psychotherapist. In 1994, she helped launch and established the charity that is called Child Bereavement UK and continues her role there as a founder patron. In 2015, she was awarded an MBE, which to our Americans is the most excellent order of the British Empire, which I think I would lead with that everywhere I went. If I had a title like that, that is just the coolest thing I've ever heard. Um, Julia has written several books, Grief Works, This Too Shall Pass, and Every Family Has a Story. It came out in 2022. She has multiple podcasts. Um, one is therapy works that you do with your daughters, Emily and Sophie, which is incredible. Yes. People need yeah. to listen to it. Um, and a living loss and grief works are also there for people to listen to. And you have also launched an incredible app, which we're going to also talk about today, which I have been a user of. So what did I forget? Th those are the nothing. Highlights. That's <laughs> the most comprehensive introduction I have ever, ever had. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, well, welcome. It is really just an honor to have you here. And I said to you off mic in the beginning that, you know, we could talk about anything that we wanted to talk about. We could go into the deep dives of academia. And, but one thing that we were both interested in talking about is the different ways in which our countries are in these worlds of grief and loss. So I think we're just going to take off and ask each other some of our own experiences about that. I mean, my I may be out of date, but I went to the US to do some um, lecturing at different hospitals in New York and Boston, particularly yeah. children's ho hospitals around child death and baby death, because I was with Child Bereavement UK. And, you know, the ways families were supported in those hospitals was very, very different. Yeah. Um, to what we offer here. And, yeah. and, you know, this was a long time ago. But what I learned, for instance, was that it was illegal to take the child away from the hospital. You couldn't take the child home and have them in their bed or your cot or their cot. And there was very little, you know, the thing that I understand around all death, but particularly around child death, is the memories that you make become the kind of footprint of how you grieve gotcha. after the death to, pay, to help you face the reality of the death. And at St Mary's where I worked, we had a whole suite of things that families, a special room, families went to, photographs, footprints, time, um, the partner could stay. Um, I mean, this isn't in every hospital, I've got to say, but it's in quite yeah. a few. Um, and, and then when I was talking to others about when adults die, 
the attitude I heard, and I'm sure that, you know, nothing is universal, is much more that kind of death is seen as a sort of failure of technology or failure of medicine. And that idea of when someone is dying of, of old age to look at both um, the cost save, treat, the, the risks and benefits of treatment of like living a shorter life with higher quality or a longer life, but with more intervention. And what are the risks and benefits isn't a question. It's just like people go in with, with medicine to, to prolong life, even if it really isn't a good quality and they may die on a um, intensive care unit. Or yeah. In. So I'm sure that's a, a cartoon, but it's some of the things I think about when I think about the US. And I know that we get some of that here too. So, you know, I'm not saying we have it all sorted. But I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I think this is this is a little bit to an aside, but I had a friend um, when I was in my late 20s, I came to visit in London and she had just had a baby. And I was unbelievably like bowled over to discover how many resources existed for a new mother. And I've talked about it on this podcast before, but there was a woman who came by regularly. Her visitor, yeah, every day, still right. happens. And, and that person also let her know the names. I mean, she was, you know, American and had just moved there and had a baby. She, she was brought into community with other mothers. Mm. There were concrete resources that she was given. And I remember sort of, because I was there when the person stopped by and I was like, what is this? You know, what, what is this? And then really when I had my own children, I thought, it doesn't really matter that I am surrounded by people who love me. I'm not sure I would tell any of them the way yeah, that I am feeling right now. And I didn't really want to get out of my house with my babies when I was feeling exhausted. And I remember this health visitor giving a bit of a lecture as to why it was so important. And so one of the things, you know, my dad died of cancer in 2017 and it was small cell cancer. So he was given a diagnosis and then he died almost a year later, which is exactly what they predicted, which is small cell sort of gives people that, that relief is that you mostly don't live past a year with that diagnosis. And I was a consumer of his death process and even though I'm in the world of grief and loss, I didn't like know it on this end. No, no, it's a different experience. experience. And I was very startled, you know, a lot of the language and sort of nursing care that we were allowed to have or could have had to do with a particular medicine that he was taking because doctors were recommending it. But it turned out that medicine, even though he was terminal, was still considered life-sustaining medicine. And when you have- This is not true, is it? No, of course not. And when you have, when you are opting to take something that is considered life-sustaining medicine, you are not eligible for end-of-life care to be paid for. So a lot of it comes down to, right. So oh my God, I didn't get that. Yes. Yeah, so, so it doesn't mean that you can't have medical care, but it's no. medical care, hospice nurses- are paid for differently. It's also insane because of how our medical system works. P people can't see your face, but Julia's going cross. <laughs> but in order to in order to receive hospice as a as a paid, it is it is paid for by Medicare. But in order for that to happen, you you can no longer be taking any medicine to sustain your life. You need to be at end of life care. And that was really challenging in my family's um, experience because my mom was really not up to total speed about how ill my father was. So some of what you're talking about, it's so important with children, which is thinking about these are the last moments that we are living. We are preparing for these moments that we will never live past with our child or our adult. And so we're prepping ourselves so that when the system takes that in and tattoos it in, it can be the least terrible possible. Hmm. And I think your system certainly is years ahead of ours in terms of thinking about doing that in a quiet space 
that feels like a home that feels beautiful. Um, I, memories. <clears throat> yeah. And can you, can you talk a little bit about your experience doing that with families and about why that's important in case that's not innately obvious to people? I think there's, it's two parts. I think psychologically and what the research shows that the first task of mourning is to face the reality of the loss. William Warden, who I'm sure you've talked about, task of mourning. And our instinct, our natural defence, our wired defence is to um, for it to be surreal and to feel kind of numb and not real. Yeah. And also our instinct is to turn away is to kind of go, well, what I don't see isn't going to hurt me. But actually, the adjustment process requires a memory, ideally a real-life memory, that you can't not know. So seeing someone who has died, being with them, having the opportunity to kiss kiss them goodbye, hold their hand, feel that it's cold, And then you know in a way you can't not know that the person has died. If you can't go into the room, then, you know, I was talking to a family last week, then I was suggesting that they take photographs because, and particularly if it's a sudden unexpected death, you know, completely out of the blue death, one minute everyone was fine and you were laughing on the phone and the next minute they've died. The the kind of work, to face the reality of the death is is worse because what you were talking about with your dad to some extent you you know the grief starts at the point of diagnosis the moment you knew that your dad only had a year to live you were in some way adjusting and finding I hope and you would have done lots of people don't but you were finding ways of saying goodbye and and storing memories and everything that you do between the diagnosis and his death is the footprint that you go back to and live over and remember and, and use when it's very sudden, you don't have that, but you need you need something that your brain goes to to let you know in a shock because pain is the agent of change. Dad has died. My dad is dead. That's right. Because if you don't have that memory, you just have this space. And in my experience as a therapist, what you don't know, you make up. And what you make up is much worse than the truth. Mm. But also you get stuck in this kind of limbo. Are they dead? You know, you think, are they? You know, and you go back and forth. Um, And, you know, going along Warden's track, as you feel the pain of loss, you kind of, you know, emotions are transmitters of information. It kind of comes through your system. You feel the pain. And as you do that, every time incrementally you adjust. That's right. And as you adjust, you accommodate, you come to terms with the loss. And that in some ways then frees you to live and love again. And that's a long, old, hard road. But the things that you do to block that moment of the memory of dad's face are the things that do you harm over time. Right. And that and that's something also when people when children have experienced a loss that comes up a lot. I mean, essentially. People on my podcast have heard me talk about Mary Frances O'Connor, who's yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I I've met her actually. Yeah, and, and so, we did we did an IG. I, her book's really good. It's the so good. It's it's so it's so good, and it's so accessible. And essentially, you know, at the core of the core of the core of it is something that I know you and I both believe, which is that you do have to learn how to grieve. Your brain is a learning machine. Yeah. It's a learning machine, and so and so yes, with my dad's death. I was what I what I always say participating. I was participating in the experience of his death. My mom died suddenly. She went to sleep and didn't wake up. And it was much more what you're talking about. And I really appreciate you tucked in there the normalcy of wanting to take pictures. Because one of the things I'm sure you hear this as a clinician, people do a whole series of things instinctively in that, in that horrible, you know, very quick several Small moments. Window. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that people often do is take pictures. And then they they don't want to tell anyone that they took a picture of their beloved dead body or their hands or their shoes or something. Um, but I have long said to people, it's a way of giving yourself a touchstone to go back to this is real, this is real, this is real, this really happened. Yeah, I took a picture of my mom. 
I, I by the way, if you do it, put it in a file that it doesn't start yes. kind of screening on your on, on your iPhone. That is I, exactly. I had done that, but I, I had to put it in a separate file. But I know some people have kind of been out and then suddenly, you know how your memory, the memory in your iPhone starts this time last year. And there's this picture of a dead person. Sitting. Right. With, with, and and that happens to us with all kinds of things, I think, with the the way in which our memories are stored in these places. You know, we can get sort of zapped back into hard but yes it because it's startling to have to even have that kind of picture it should probably be kept somewhere really precious i'm thinking about sort of all of the things that i'm i see you do in your work in the uk you guys have the good grief festival is that what it's called yeah i mean just an extraordinary series of conversations of grievers and experts who are just Amazing. to me it feels like having living room style conversations it's not lectures yeah, yeah. It's yeah, just, yeah. um it's not that we don't have things like that here but yours is is well um advertised and it's there are people participating in it it feels like healthcare like sort of generalized healthcare yes. yeah yeah that that they're um and I know that you there are grief cafes that happen and death cafes. Yeah. Can you can you just sort of like talk about but the death cafes are in the US, aren't they? They're global. They, they are you offer a lot in that in of your own time and of your own. What is it that you're hoping these things are doing? What is it that that effort good like Christian? Yeah. What are you hoping that that is impacting? I think. In my years as a therapist, of all the people, all the people that walk through my door, the thing that has bothered me for decades is their lack of knowledge and awareness about what would support them around grief. Yeah. And that if they didn't do battle with themselves, like they should be doing it better. If they had known some of the Kind of information that really supports them in yeah. the time after the person has died, like yeah. seeing the body or having an opportunity to say goodbye or telling till the children the truth or what, whatever it is. It really protects them from a horrible, shaming, furious regret and yeah. a process of regret that interferes with the very natural grieving process. And so I kind of feel you know if one person takes something from one conversation that's better than nothing. right you know some I I I don't like listening to myself after I've done stuff and I don't like looking at myself after I've done stuff I have this kind of awful a ambivalence about attention but awful this horrible kind of shame about doing stuff kind of in a public facing but also, I love these conversations. I love meeting you. I love meeting people. I love being out in the world. I love being with this community. So, you know, I also do it because I really enjoy it. And it feels very meaningful. Yeah. I know I've said it to you, but I'll say it again, because I'm not sure I've said it on the podcast, that after my dad died, my husband and I sort of went our separate ways. He took the kids home. I stayed with my siblings. And the first night that we were back together, I got in bed and he was reading GriefWorks. And I was like, what are you reading? You know, what is that book? And then he just sort of turned it over and showed it to me, which made me burst into tears. I know it was so loving of him. It was someone had sent it to him and it was, it was so lovely of him. And that what, what I, I use that example all the time because people say all the time that they neither knew what to expect in grief, which breaks my heart because there's so much information that you and I in our community have that is not baloney it's like real information so we can help and it's not you don't need that much you don't need that much it's not rocket science not physics it's no and and that to become a supporter is actually not that hard that to pick up any one of your books listen to any of your podcasts to actually i mean the app is so great to go and be a recipient of the app even if you are not currently grieving any one of these things you know i i talk to a lot of companies 
And sometimes they get kind of like a glazed look like, oh, we, how do we become grief informed? And it's just, what I say is you could, you could just buy 25 books and put them in your, you know, at the front desk. And that is more than having nothing that shows people that you care about grief and loss. But I think exactly what you've just described, which is being able to say to people those first moments that you learn of a, um, of a death of a loved so, one uh, or something yeah. or something d- deeply tragic has happened. It's though there's a clock there and how you are able to support yourself or be supported by other people really matters. In it, the- it's the biggest single predictor of your outcome. Yeah. So the love and support that you receive from others and the self-compassion, the kindness as you turn to yourself, is the bigger predictor of your outcome, even from very traumatic, sudden and awful death. Yeah. It's the thing that matters most. And it is the thing that supporters find frightening because we still have this huge taboo about death. So people don't talk about it in the hope that somehow it's not going to happen to them or it's not going to be their problem. And then when it is, it's like, oh, I missed that. (laughs) <laughs> well, it was, it's always going to be everyone's problem. That's yeah. why it's so important is that, you know, you, you may walk through all of England and I may never come to that country, but we will both experience grief on yes. our different shores. That's an absolute. And Definitely. I think, I think this, um, I think this idea of, of being able to know what the support looks like. You have, is it seven pillars? Is it eight pillars, seven? You have a on your website, like eight. eight, thank you. You know, I feel like it's the cliff notes to the things that it is that we need. Can you, you don't have to list all eight, but the question that I get the most is, okay, there are lots of things that people are willing to talk about that didn't help them in grief because people do say that a lot. And, you know, you've given us a couple of examples. Are there, are there things that are universally true? And I think your eight pillars are the answer. Yeah. They're the answer to that question. That's what you get with 33 years of experience. Can you, can you tell folks a little bit about what um, maybe two or three or five or eight of them that you are think are the most important? So they can, you, they can find anyone listening can find them on the grief works app and they're also on my website. So there's both. So I think the the two I've kind of already mentioned is your relationship to yourself. So being kind to yourself, not criticizing yourself and grief. Often we're very harsh on ourselves. We turn what I call our shitty committee and we turn it on to ourselves. Right. And then the other big thing, which we actually haven't talked about, is the relationship to the person that's died. This idea of continuing bonds that the task of mourning is paradoxical it's facing the reality of their death and allowing yourself to feel the pain of it whilst the love for them continues and having touchstones you use the word touchstones to their memory and creating touchstones that work for you whether it's making their favorite drink or going for a walk where you walk with them or wearing something of theirs or writing a journal I mean there's endless ways so but it's the continuing relationship of love I think the other big one, which is kind of basic, but and and important for all health is exercise because grief feels like fear. Yeah. So getting outside, even if it's only for 10 minutes, moving your body, whatever the weather, however awful you feel, you will always feel better when you go back inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- and the other one that is kind of really helpful, I think, is structure. Yeah, because grief is messy and chaotic. It's unpredictable. It can come and get you when you don't expect it to, and not when you expect it to. And so, I think having a structure, a loose one, not a kind of police state, that you kind of give yourself, and good habits were wired to be habitual, that they kind of give you both time to get tasks done, to be restorative, to get on with your life, kind of do your emails, do some work, bring keep the the lights on. Yeah. Um, and but also time to focus on your grief, to remember, to emote, to, to grieve, I think helps you through that, you know, chaotic process of grieving. One of the things that I love about the pillars is that 
you are encouraging people to do things. I think one of, right. So I think one of the things that, that we don't do very well in this country is we sort of say like, go to therapy for an hour, you know, talk about grief there and then come back and be normal. And I think people don't know what that means. Like, what does it mean to actually do the verb of grief like what is grieving me it's embodied it's physical isn't it it's in your body it is and so I think knowing that going on a walk because you are in grief is grieving and I think it's really helpful for people to know that that and and even that concept of continuing bonds the idea that you want to shift from the only the pain and and as I say this I feel like it's important to say out loud I have a really hard time with continuing bonds I I do not as a concept. I know people, my sister is one of them and she will say like, oh yeah, I was talking to mom today or I was thinking about how much I mostly experience it as painful. I feel pain like, God, I wish my mom was here. And then I think to think, oh, I should be thinking about her. I should be thinking about her right now. And the way that I would love to invite myself into the continuing bonds relationship is more how you described it, which is to continue the loving relationship with someone, even though they're not here, but that I have, I have experienced that as something I need to practice, something I need to do intentionally. It has not inherently been simple for me to do. But that makes sense. I mean, in the sense that you're different from your sister because we're all different from each other, but also the intensity of the pain is still part of you. So that is what hits you first. That's the first port of call in relation to your mom. Mm. And over time, that intensity is more likely to be less and it will come and go. But you can't can't fix your feelings to suit, (laughs) you know, somebody's theory. So you have to kind of support yourself in that what you do feel but then with intention, choosing to toast her or say, mom, what shall I do about my teenage daughter? Or mom, what do you think about this? You would, you know what her answer would be. It's in you. Well, and it's probably both. You know, my mom loved cheesecake and sometimes on special occasions we'll eat cheesecake for breakfast because she was irreverent and did things like that. And that does feel different, I think, than when it's pain facing first. And I love your answer. It's so compassionate. And it's important for me to just say to people who are listening, my mom died nearly four years ago. So, and I talk about grief and loss and have written memoirs and books about her. So I'm doing lots of grief work, but that's, that I think it's minimized. Right. I, but I think that that element gets minimized globally, that the idea that it could, that there could still be real pain four years after someone died or seven years after someone died or 30 years after someone died, people that I have worked with seem very surprised by that. And it's not surprising. It's completely normal. And when you stop to pause and think about it, it makes perfect sense. Why would you ever stop missing your child who isn't here anymore or your mother who isn't here anymore? Or why would that be? And yet we, we behave sort of like in, in the world over here. I think, I think Americans give you about three months. That's been my experience. You get about three of sort of compassion and understanding. And then, and then really people around you just sort of forget, they kind of forget about it, which is, I mean, so one of my pillars is time and, you know, there's so many lenses of time, but one of them is the kind of busyness and also the structure of somebody else's judgment of how much time you're allowed to grieve you know three months six months a year and also people always ask me how long and I think rather than thinking in in the Greek term chronological time to think of it as felt time which is kairos time rather yeah, kairos. which is which is the felt time of the you're ready when you're ready like trust in your experience, allow yourself to feel what you feel in the time that you feel. It doesn't have any external measure mm. of weeks or months. But also I, that with with also with loss that 
your relationship with time is changed. You're aware of your own mortality. You tend to look back more than forward. The future can look scary. So the whole relationship with time yeah. is different. Absolutely. And, and I love that reminder also because I think that the Kairos and Kronos time sort of help us remember that the not only does is healing not linear, but also the way in which we formulate our memories isn't linear. So that, you know, you can have memories that are from when you're age five that are stronger and more potent and maybe more emotionally meaningful than the ones from three days before your person died. So I, I just love the, the sort of reminder that time, time is what it decides is the meaning. We don't necessarily get to decide how long it's going to take or can I ask you a question about about other people one of the questions I get a lot it's not even really a question it's more hearing about like deep painful experiences and I know you have the word isn't boundaries in your um pillars but it's something like that I think it's your last pillar and I can't I just can't think focusing Eugene Jenlin yes so so there's what I hear from folks often is that they just want to be alone in their grief, that they just want to be alone. And because I come from the world of trauma and most of my clients who come in are not coming in with grief that would easily resolve on its own, which is also the kind of grief that I experienced when my mom died. Um, there is a kind of shattering of self and feeling very self-conscious and uncomfortable around other people, maybe mm -hmm. furiously angry. And I'm just curious about how do you guide people in that space when what they say is, I want to be totally by myself. And sort of what we know is being isolated is not okay. good for anyone's mental health under really any circumstances. Do you, do you find something similar with your grievers? I haven't, I haven't that. found it so much, but I mean, the thing I would, if someone came to me and said that, the thing I would hold is both that on the one hand, I can really hear yeah. that you really want to be alone and to kind of honor your person and feel the pain of it. And you don't want to be disturbed or demanded of or ask questions or have to perform in any way. You just want to mm. sit in it. And I would also hold that we know from research, from experience, from everybody that isolating yourself leaves you, um, you're much more likely to go into com complicated grief. That's right. Um, and so my offer to you is acknowledge and allow that this is what you want and maybe think about small creative steps that you can do that give you little times of connection, little pools of connection, not big things like right. a cup of coffee or a, a, a FaceTime, you know, so that you, you do feel the bond of connection and the care of other people coming into your system. Yeah. Because really that's what you need is that when the love of someone dies, it's the love of others opening our heart enough to let the love of others into us that enables us to survive. Yeah. And again, I think what's really important about your pillars, and I want to talk a bit about your app because I think it does the same, um, is that it is not assuming that you already know exactly what is good for you in grief. Like you and I can dream of a world where everyone understands, you know, and I say this all the time, I'll write a curriculum if somebody wants it. I know the Dougie Center here has written it multiple that, that it, we could be teaching people this on a very wide scale we are just not really i mean our efforts are our efforts but it globally people could know more than they do so your pillars and the way in which you're encouraging someone is to is what has that you're not supposed to know this necessarily we do kind of embody our own experience with grief and there are things that you don't just have to sit there with this. And, and some of those things are additionally hard. You're doing this very hard thing of grieving and it's going to be hard to get up and go take a walk, but it's really good for you. 
it's inherently good for you. It's better for you than sitting there and go ahead and do those things. And I, again, I do want to say to people who are listening, I know all these things and I found, I found it really hard to take even a walk around the block. Um, particularly after my mom died, I just didn't have the energy inside my body. So even though I knew it to be true with the like intellect of someone who had studied it, I was like, nah, not doing it. Which which is not which is not great. Can we talk a little bit about your app? Because I'm yeah. really fascinated by um the ways in which we are able to avail ourselves of new technology. And um one of the things that I have to say, and I wrote it because I got to beta test your app, um, that I loved the most was that at 10 o'clock I got a message that just asked me how my day was how was your day how how was it and i i mean it wasn't it, the sentence the 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 message that i got wasn't even particularly grief related there were others that were but it was a reminder to check in with myself just how was your day and i think being mindful of your emotional experience when you are grieving is so unbelievably important yeah i agree so let's talk about it. How did it come to, to be? And was it was it something that you um, thought, hey, let's add this to the long bag of tricks of ways that I'm helping? <laughs> was there a need that you saw? How did how did you come to decide to create it? And maybe tell us a little bit about it. I mean, so <clears throat> I was approached by the company who I partner with to make it. Um but I would never have done it if I didn't believe that that it was really kind of personal to people. So the thing I love about it, and, and it took us two years to develop, it was a huge amount of, of work and lots of beta testing. Thank yeah. you for yours. I loved it. Um, is that I want, you know, therapy is expensive and it's weekly. Grief is isolating and lonely. People often, you know, do want to have contact with friends or family, but feel embarrassed or feel they should get over it. Or there are so many impediments to kind of grieving kind of fully. And so I wanted to develop something that felt like they were creating a relationship with me as the person who kind of knows about grief that they could trust through the app, through the virtual world of the app. And that it would, in that one place, on their phone, give them everything they need. Yeah. So not going to lots of different places where you, your memory is so terrible when you're grieving, so that they would have a journal. They would have the 28-day course, which is, is like reading my book, really, but it's me talking to them about what happened to you, what was difficult, you know, the different kind of stages and phases of, of grieving that there's the tools. So there's sleep tools, meditations for sleep, there's exercise, there's yoga. Oh, the, yeah, they're really Love good. the meditations. They're so good. Um, and now there's connection to grief therapists that is on the app. And now we have a monthly um, Zoom where people can come in and meet me and ask me questions and build a connection with others. And they build... A community they have breakout rooms after the hour so that it's building you know the thing I as I said earlier the thing that supports people most in grief when they're grieving the person who's died is building relationships that support them to bear the pain of it and to believe that they can trust in something that can help them process the pain of it and release them from the pain to get on and have a better day yeah. And all the prompts in the app are about that. They're very compassionate. They're very kind of um, supportive. And it's there. You wake up with a pounding heart at four in the morning. It's right and there. it's there. And you can write, you can listen, you can do a little yoga stretch, whatever it is. And I just think I'm just so grateful that we've done it. And we've had unbelievable reviews. Have you? Yeah. I mean, that, and they make me cry. I get sent yeah. them. You know, a man who said, I've been struggling with my grief for three years and within 14 days, I felt better from your app. Oh, my God. You know, people who have really been stuck or they've been isolated, they haven't been able to talk to family. They shared the app together. They could talk with each other. I mean, it's 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 really it does work. It really works. 
It has so much clinical um, expertise in it that is not taught. Just the idea that there's journaling. We knew so much about why writing your story and writing your feelings is is emotionally supportive under any circumstance, but it's really important to sort of create a narrative that you can carry in grief. The stretching and the yoga and the meditation, I mean, all of that is, we have so much data about. But and Mary what- Frances O'Connor got someone to do some research from the feedback we got, and yeah. it showed that it actually made a difference. There's a proper word for it in research. So it, there was a significant. Significant, yeah. Up, uplift, yeah. or I don't know, a research word for good. Well, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the data. And she, I mean, she is an, she is amazing. The statisticians and the people who are willing to give us the data. I was just on a call recently where we were talking about sort of the frustration of, you know, when you're doing more qualitative interventions, how do you cluster? I measure them, I know. Yeah, well, and one of the things that's challenging, and I want to sort of pose this as a question, but but what I find tricky is somebody who comes into this with a tr- you know a trauma background. So I'm my subset of people are already coming in, having identified themselves as really having trouble with grief, and many of them have suffered for much longer than anyone would want anyone to suffer with symptoms because they didn't really know. And then when they did know, they felt deep shame about having not been able to do well. But there's some there are some theories out there and some people who have written some books about the percentage of people who are going to need more. I think, I think the it's word 17%, isn't it? Yeah. So so it it varies on what you read, but it's between thir- 17 is higher than I than I normally hear. It's usually between like 12 and 15 okay. percent. And whether you throw those people into categories with different diagnoses, essentially what what we're talking about is is a group of people who may need treatment for their grief, right? That is not the same even though it is often spoken about as the same, which is people who could benefit from support in their grief, mm-hmm. right? And so one of the things that I find really tricky in our field is that people say, well, listen, people are going to be fine. It's only really this 17% that are going to need help. Maybe and, I got that wrong. I, I, I'm i very bad at numbers. Or 13 or 15, whatever, whatever it is. It is. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a small percentage in the scheme of numbers of mm. people. But- but what I'm careful to sort of pull apart is, listen, it's like not giving some, not giving a child, an 11 year old education about their going through puberty and then asking them, could you have used more support going through puberty? Like, of course they could have used more support. It would have been nice to have been educated. They were trying to figure things out on their own. And, and there are cultures where that is people's experience. With grief and loss, because we don't have core education, when we're going to somebody and qualitatively saying, hey, we're going to collate this data, could you have used more support? Did you need treatment or help? Depends on when you ask them. Because I, I'm treating somebody right now that they have not had a good night's sleep in 11 years. Oh, my goodness. I know. But because they were not connecting that issue their sleep issue with what happened 11 years ago which was the death of someone beloved they have been seeking other sorts of treatments and there isn't general education about what they could need but my point about it is what your app is offering is people support and some of the people who 24 7 24 7 and so some of those people who are isolating maybe or are not ready to get back out into the world. They're still getting engaged with community and education and and sort of like normalizing. Here's this app that's going to tell you it's normal. We expect you to feel this way. Yeah, You can can interact. It does everything, I think, in the sense that it gives you information. It gives you structure. It gives you ways of processing what you feel. You can go over the same... um, aspect the same phase over and over so you go at your own time in your own pace in your own way you can shape it for yourself and we're going to add two things in the next couple of weeks one is anticipatory grief so knowing that someone is going to die absolutely and the other one is when a a pet dies that's which is so significant it's so significant and and i love that you're often ignored yeah 
absolutely ignored. I mean, I, I, even people who have lost pets minimize pet loss because culturally we're not supposed to care that much about our pets. But from neuroscience, it is so much simpler to plainly love an animal. They're not loved. tricky. They, they don't ask much. That's right. Humans are there. Humans are the tough. So I love that. And, and there have been some good books that have come out about pet loss recently. And, and oddly, that's a kind of loss that I think we talk to children better about than we make room for with adults. Um, but I, I tell you what I also think having you having said that, which is a bit of a sideline, but I think as adults, we feel more childlike when we're grieving. So if we think about what children need, that is also what adults need. That's, oh, that is so good. I ha- I've said this on my podcast so many times, but because the folks that I work with have trauma and generally, generally I'm making, it's a big generalization, but many of them had childhood trauma somewhere. And so a lot would feed into the, the trauma would be, then be more complex. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so. And insecure attachments and all of that. Exactly. So that, so that there's usually childhood experiences, there's been some mess along the way. And so when we get to this, to the adult, you know, significant loss, there's some mess in the background. Part of what I almost always find there is some unmet childhood grief, you know, a nanny who left without saying goodbye, a dog who died, kids who moved at significant ages, and and you know we sort of cluster how we learn information and so the griefs are sort of all connected in a ball together so the the app right now is changing and shifting and we're going to link to it so that people can um can go and find it and sign up for it and again i think it's free for the first two or three days is it yeah i I think that's right and i mean i i think i used it for five months and um, I, and I'll say there were parts of it I never used, right? Because it's like a buffet. You can go mm-hmm. in and I, at the time, and actually some of the meditation I didn't get to till later. Cause I had some meditation that I really loved. And then it was the middle of the night. I don't want to get out of my bed and disturb the house. And I turned it on and I was like, oh my God, these meditations are so great. Um, but I, I'm not just saying nice things about it because I think nice things about it. I used it as a griever, which is such a, um, a unique a different thing. Yeah, yeah. it really so is. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's such a beautiful gift to have out there. You're also doing the podcasts with your daughters. You're still, yes. are you still also doing Instagram lives? I feel like I've yes, seen. Yeah, yeah. Tonight. Those, yeah. Oh, good. So we'll link to all of those things. Are there upcoming projects or things that you are writing or doing that um, you want to let folks know? I mean, my book, it, but the, the, every family has a story, how we inherit love and losses out in the U.S. It was launched in November of last year. Yeah. Um, and I came and tried to launch it. Um, and no, I think my Instagram, the podcast therapy works. And it is a joy doing it with my two adult It's amazing. <laughs> yes. It's amazing that you get it's to It's a lovely that. thing. It's a lovely thing. Yeah. Take the piss. <laughs> I mean, it's All amazing to, to, to um, it's such a gift to see people with their you know, I did a podcast with my kids and we ended up laughing so hard. And it's been, it's one of my most listened to podcasts because I'm just different with my kids. But also your daughters are incredibly knowledgeable, super smart people. More than once I've been like, damn, that's good. But she just too. I don't know masses of stuff that they know. It's like, how the hell did you know that? I don't know. But it is, and it, you're a you're a, a lineage of helping people, helping people. But the podcasts are incredible, and your Monday your Monday top tips. That's often what I wake up to because we're five hours behind you. Yes, and I on Instagram. Yeah, they're just um, you quickly give us nuggets of really important stuff. Um, it's not always grief and loss. Sometimes yeah. it's, you know it's just general good health stuff. I, I mean, I, I I started it, I think, in lockdown because I was having, it was January, it was freezing cold, it was seven in the morning and we were in our second lockdown and the world looked so bleak. So I thought, I've got to do something that's going to cheer me up. And so I thought, okay, what would be a quick thing that I could do that would cheer me up? And it kind of took off. 
from there. And I think about it literally about 10 minutes before yeah. I do it. Sure. Because otherwise it's too big a thing and you have yeah. to be too clever. So I just think, yeah. well, what have I, who have I talked to this week? That's and what right. has somebody said to me this week that I can actually remember? <laughs> so, yeah. That's the best, but that's the, I think that's sort of the like landed. Organic. What did someone say that I thought, wow, that is interesting. That's an, it's an organic conversation with you. That's what it, that's what it ends up feeling like. I just really love it. I mean, I, I, it's usually what I wake up to on Monday morning and it gives me something to think about. So I would Thanks. definitely encourage people to follow you on Instagram. I, what you just made me think of during the pandemic, most of my, most of my clients at that time were people who were living alone. And so there, yeah, which I mean, you know, that, that really doubled down on mental health um, challenges. Oh my my goodness. So what I started almost inadvertently was asking my network of people to send me the funniest thing they had seen on the internet. And, you know, and most of the time it's like children swearing in Scottish or something, you know, but, but they were very, very, and so it became almost like an exchange, like a Yankee swap. Like I would send it to a client and they would send it to a client and they just because part of what, you know, I want to sort of end us on this note that, you know, the purpose of grieving is to move energy through us, the hard energy through us that we can still have access to the love that is there, that continues to be there and, and the life yeah. You know, that, you know, that, life in our life not yeah, death in our and life. to move forward. I think some of the grief work that we do is more like a circle. We're just trying to write our ship. And I think your pillars and your books and, you know, some of your podcasts really dig into it. And yeah. as somebody who's been a personal recipient of that and in multiple ways, I am just really totally grateful for the work yeah. that you are doing. Go over to the show notes so you can see all the links to the things that Julia is doing. She is prolific in her work and really generous, putting a lot of it out there for people to just interact with without a cost. And don't forget that if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to go over to Apple and give us a five-star rating and put in a written comment because both of those things really help to suggest the podcast to other people who might be grieving and help them connect to these resources. Thanks so much.